Hi everyone, welcome back to episode 23 of A Couple of Creeps. I am your hostess with the most is Morgan, and I am joined by my least favorite co-host, Colin. Say hi, Colin. Howdy. Now, listen everybody. Brief hiatus. I've been on a brief hiatus like a K-pop star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been, but I'm back, and I'm ready to go. Summer's passed, vacations have happened. Yep. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Now we're getting ready for the holidays. Oceans have risen and fallen. <laughs> Empires. Empires. <laughs> I've got a bum knee. <laughs> <laughs> Busted my knee up. Busted my knee up. Doing uh, mankind's <laughs> mankind's most rigorous activity. I am Thursday on, night bowling league. I am on a women's only bowling league, and I have strained a muscle in my knee. Just blew a knee out. <laughs> In uh, the most demanding sport known to man. <laughs> That's why it's at the Olympics. <laughs> bowling. Bowling. Can you imagine Olympic-level bowling? <laughs> I'd be trying out for that team. Uh, it's just a bunch of fucking Russians out there. Just very stony. Just I'm picturing strikes. them all beefed up like hockey players. Yeah, they're massive. And they're just bowling 300 games. They're pulling them from their homes as children. <laughs> putting them in training. Just raising them from birth. Like Spartans. <laughs> to be an Olympic bowler. To just bowlers. be an Olympic bowler. You know, there was the Miracle on Ice in the 80s. It's going to be Miracle on the Lane. <laughs> the miracle on, on Lane, yeah. Miracle on Lane 12. The miracle on Wood. Miracle on Board, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Anyways. Anyways, that's a little bit about what's going on in our life right now. Hopefully you guys are having a good time as well. And uh, I know I teased it. Back in May. Teased it last episode. Last episode, we'll go with that. That we were going to talk about women who kill their husbands, specifically mm -hmm. one woman. I like how uh, ominous it is that you were like, <laughs> next week we're going to talk about women who kill their husbands and then just disappeared. And <laughs> just never came and like, back. Oh shit, she did it. Oh no. Oh no. What makes a young, young girl snap? What makes a young girl snap? Yeah. And their husband forgets to take the laundry basket upstairs. <laughs> asking for four days anyways i thought today we'd talk about Catherine mary knight Catherine mary knight yep all right do you know who that is i don't would you like to learn about her uh, what if i said no well that's a too damn bad <laughs> You'd be like, well this is a short episode i'm tired grandpa that's too damn bad Catherine mary knight was the first australian woman to be sentenced to life in prison without parole she was our nine our nine she was convicted of the murder of her husband, John... She's got a long name. John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. <laughs> Almost. John Carl... Oh, my God. Carlisle? <laughs> John Charles Thomas Price. I like that none of those are tough names. <laughs> I know. And you were looking at this thing breathing, trying to wind up like, to it. <sighs> Shit, I gotta say four dudes' names. I gotta say four names here. John Charles Thomas Price in October 2001 and is currently detained in Silverwater Women's Correctional Center. All right. So we're going to start off with a little bit about her family to see where it leads. Sure. Did her mom kill her dad? No. Oh, okay. And as you'll hear in further down the story, mom warned some men in Catherine's life like, oh. she's a little kooky. I'd stay away from this one. She's a little lancy. <laughs> she's a few tools short from a toolbox. Yeah. So, Catherine's mother's name was Barbara Rohan, who was originally from the town of Aberdeen in New South Wales' Hunter Valley, and was forced to move to Moray after beginning a relationship with 
Ken Knight, a co-worker of her husband, John Rohan. Hell yeah. We're off to a good start. And this is mom? This is mom. Okay. The Rohan so and... mom's an adulterer. Yes. The Rohan and Knight families were both well-known in the conservative rural town, and the affair was a major scandal. Oh, my God. Drama. Yeah. <laughs> Spill the tea, sisters. Let me hear it. <laughs> two of Rohan's four children remained with their father, while the two youngest were sent to live with an aunt in Sydney. Okay. Catherine Knight was the younger of twins born to Barbara and Ken on October 24th. 19- Barbie and Ken? Yeah. My yeah. God. On October 4th, 1955, in Tinterfield, New South Wales. Jack Rohan died in 1959, and the two children who had lived with him moved in with the Knight family. Barbara's, Barbara's grandmother was apparently an indigenous Australian woman from the Moray area who had married an Irishman. She was proud of this fact and liked to think of her own family as aboriginals. Okay. This was kept a family secret as there was considerable racism in the area at the mm-hmm. time, and this was a source of tension for the children. Yeah. Apart from her twin, the only person Catherine was close with was her uncle Oscar Knight, who, fun fact, was a champion horseman. Oh. She was devastated when he committed suicide in 1969 and continues to maintain that his ghost visits her. Mm-hmm. The family moved back to Aberdeen that same year. And this is still mom. Yeah. Yeah, so this was mom's life and how Catherine came to it. All right. Yeah. So, early life, Catherine's father, Ken, was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to sexually assault her mother up to ten times a day. Jesus. Barbara, in turn, often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and men. And later, when Catherine complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sex act she didn't want to do, Barbara told her to put up with it and stop complaining. Sick. Catherine also claims she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family, though not by her father, which continued until she was 11. Jesus. Although they have minor doubts about the details, psychiatrists accept her claim as all of her family members confirm the abuse did in fact happen. Okay. So not the best childhood. No. Perhaps laying the groundwork for why she might be willing to kill men. Yeah. Catherine was by all accounts a pleasant girl who also experienced uncontrollable murderous rage in response to minor upsets. When she attended Musselwell Brook High School, she became a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over smaller children. She assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon. My God. And was once injured by a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. My God, I like that she's attacking a teacher so bad that they went, eh, that was self-defense. That's self-defense. By contrast, when not in a rage, Catherine was a model student and often earned awards for her good behavior. Wow. So let's flip the coin and see what we get yeah, today. Yeah, exactly. Upon leaving school at 15, without having learned to read or write, she gained employment as a cutter at a clothing factory. Twelve months later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job at the local slaughterhouse, from where she was quickly promoted to boning and given her own set of butcher knives. Oh, fuck. At home. You cut meat real good. But wait... At home, she hung the knives over her bed so that they would always be handy if I needed them. A habit she continued until her incarceration everywhere she lived. 
my God. <laughs> Talk about intimidation when you come to bed. Yeah, no kidding. Just got a set of butcher knives hanging Just over Just above you. the bed. All right. So we're going to talk about David Kellett, who's her husband. Okay. Catherine first met hard-drinking co-worker David Stanford Kellett in 1973 and completely dominated him. If Kellett got into a fight at the hotel, Catherine would step in and back him up with her fists. Without fail, in Aberdeen, she was renowned for offering armed combat to anyone who upset her. <laughs> you want to fucking go? Let's go! I dare you! Like, anybody that upset her, they just fucking piss her off. She's like, you want to take this shit outside? Let's go outside. Like, what the fuck? Are She's you serious? brass knuckles and yeah. butcher knives. Oh my God. She's a hard woman. Catherine married David in 1974 at her request. So she requested that they get married. Mm -hmm. With the couple arriving at the service on her motorcycle. <laughs> with a very intoxicated David on the back seat. <laughs> they had to get fucked up for this. <laughs> Just rolling <laughs> up with his arms around her waist. She's just like, get in there. We gotta get married. We're getting married. Get in there. <laughs> He's just fucked up, so we can deal with it. Yeah. As soon as they arrived, Catherine's mother Barbara gave David some advice. <laughs> this is this get is, out now. This is what she said. Leave while she's sleeping. This is David's quote. The old girl said to me to watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. And that was her mother talking. She told me she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. My God. Mom's like, son. Yeah, I, whatever you do. You, does, so he's not the husband that gets killed? No. Oh, thank God. No. She's a... Uh, prolific? Prolific and she's got a few uh, fellows in her life. Mm-hmm. On their wedding night, she tried to strangle him. Perfect. Catherine explained it was because he fell asleep after only having intercourse three times. <laughs> My God. First of all, how do you mean, how do you even achieve erection under threat of death? You know what I mean? Like, oh my God. Just the fear and stress. Let alone three times. Three and then times. and then he fell asleep. Yeah, because yeah. he's fucking drunk and terrified. <laughs> he's and he's He's a shriveled up former salt. Yeah, and he's a husk. The marriage was particularly violent, and on one occasion, a heavily pregnant Catherine burned all of David's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the head with a frying pan. Fuck yeah. Simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition after making the finals. <laughs> and fear for his... This, this is such an Australian story. <laughs> the outback is different, man. <laughs> In fear for his life, David fled before collapsing at a neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a badly fractured skull. Jesus Christ, she killed him almost. <laughs> Police wanted to charge her, but Catherine was now on her best behavior and talked David into dropping the charges. Mm -hmm. In May 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, David left her for another woman and moved to Queensland, apparently unable to cope with Catherine's possessive, violent behavior. Yeah, no shit. The next day, Catherine was seen pushing her new baby in a stroller down the main street, violently throwing the stroller from side to side. <laughs> Catherine was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. Mm -hmm. After being released, Catherine placed two-month-old 
Melissa on a railway line shortly before the train was due, then stole an axe, went into town and threatened to kill several people, a man known in the district as Old Ted, who was foraging near the railway, found and rescued Melissa by all accounts only minutes before the train passed. Jesus Christ. Again, this is such an Australian <laughs> story. That's old Ted. <laughs> He's just out there foraging you. Oh, no. Oh, what was that? <laughs> oh, oh, no. There you go. Oh, no. Oh, no. Catherine was arrested and again taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, but apparently recovered, signed herself out the following day. Mm-hmm. A few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded she drive her to Queensland to find David. Fuck, she's on, <laughs> she's, on, she's on a rampage. The woman escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time police arrived, Catherine had taken a little boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. She was disarmed when police attacked her with brooms. <laughs> And she was admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. Catherine told the nurses she had intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had repaired David's car, which had allowed him to leave and then kill both her husband and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I was going to kill a mechanic that fixed the car that let him leave. Yeah. That was gonna That's kill. bitter. That and then was I was going to kill him, him and his and mom. Because she gave birth to him. Yeah. When police informed David of the incident, he left his girlfriend, and along with his mother, they both moved to Aberdeen to support Catherine. So, Oh, the daughter. Okay. Oh, no, her. Her. Fuck. Yeah. So, outside being an alcoholic, he seems like an okay guy. <laughs> no shit. He went back. Yeah. After he hears, oh, yeah, she was coming to kill you. For the second time. Yeah, and he's like, I better go I back. I better go back. Catherine was released on on August 9th, 1976, into the care of her mother-in-law along with David. They moved to Woodridge, a suburb of Brisbane, where she obtained a job at the Dinmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. On March 6th, 1980, they had another daughter, Natasha Marie. This old boy is still... He's still going in. He's still going. In 1984, Catherine left David and moved in first with her parents in Aberdeen, then to a rented house in nearby Musselwell Brook. Although she returned to work, she injured her back the following year and went on disability pension. No longer needing to rent accommodation close to her work, the government gave her a housing commission house in Aberdeen. Okay. Now we're going to meet her boyfriend. Okay. Just my boyfriend. His name was also David. David Saunders. Nice. Okay. So we'll, we'll refer to him as Saunders. Saunders. Catherine met 38-year-old minor David Saunders in 1986. A few months later, he moved in with her and... Hold on. Did you say minor like as the profession? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's down mining. Yeah. A few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters, although he kept his old <laughs> apartment in Scone. Catherine soon became jealous regarding what he did when she was not around and would often throw him out. He would move back to his apartment in Scone and then she would in- invariably follow him and beg him to return. In May 1987, she cut the throat of his two-year-old dingo pup in front of him. Oh, my God. With no more reason than as an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair before going on to knock him unconscious with a frying pan. Turn these frying pans, dude. <laughs> Fucking keep him away from keep her. Keep him away. In June 1988, she gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah, which prompted Saunders to put a deposit on the house, which Catherine paid off when her workers' compensation came through in 1989. 
Catherine decorated the house throughout with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. No space, including the ceilings, were left uncovered. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> that rusty bear trap hanging on the wall. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a pitchfork stick to the ceiling. <laughs> Just look up and it's hanging there. It's just there. Just I picture it place. being like a chandelier and yeah, it's kind of dangling. It's kind of dangling. It's like the sword of Damocles just waiting to drop on you. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. <laughs> Dinner watching it dangle. It's over his seat. <laughs> she the, makes him sit there. The machete's over his seat. Yeah. It's just dangling. After an argument where she hit Saunders in the face with an iron. Before... I thought you were about to say Frank. <laughs> <laughs> she went with an iron this time. Before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Jesus. He moved back to Scone. Good call. But when he later returned home, he found she had to cut up all of his clothes. Saunders took a long service leave and went into hiding. Yeah. Catherine tried to find him, but no one admitted to knowing where he was. Several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found that Catherine had gone to the police and told them she was afraid of him. They issued her an apprehended violence order, an AVO, against him. Now, how do they not see her record? Well, I guess it was the 80s. It's the 80s in different parts of Australia. Yeah. I've never been to Australia. I don't know how connected all the cities how were back in the, in the 80s. Yeah. I don't know how connected they are now. Do they have lights? Do they have electricity? <laughs> yes, they do. Do they, do they still <laughs> horse and buggy? <laughs> do they have brick roads? Are they still dirt and living in loincloths? Like an uncontacted tribe, this Australia <laughs> you speak of. What is this Australia? All right. We're going to talk about another man. Okay. This man is... So this is the third man. I'm a, I referred to him as friend with benefits. Is his name David? No, his name is John Chillingworth. All right. In 1990, Catherine became pregnant again <laughs> by a 43-year-old former slaughterhouse co-worker, John Chillingworth, and gave birth the following year to a boy they named Eric. Their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man she had been having an affair with for some time, John Price. My God, she's just... Yeah. <laughs> like, how are these dudes... If, yeah. Like, I mean, all right. All right, let, let's go. All right. So last, but certainly not least, is John Price. Right. John Price was the father of three children when Catherine had an affair with him, reputably a terrific bloke. Like by everyone who knew him, his own marriage had ended in 1988, while his two-year-old, two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife. The two older children lived with him. Price was well aware of Catherine's violent reputation, and she moved into his house in 1995. Okay. His children liked her, and he was making a lot of money working in the local mines, and apart from violent arguments, life was, and I quote, a bunch of roses. <laughs> In 1998, they had a fight over Price's refusal to marry her. In retaliation, Catherine videotaped items he had stolen from work and sent the tapes to his boss. Although the items were out-of-date medical kits that he had scavenged from the company dumpster, Price was fired from the job he had held for 17 years. That same day, he kicked her out and she returned to her own house while news of what she had done spread through the town. Yeah. A few months later, Price restarted the relationship, although he now refused to allow her to move in with him. Yeah. 
The fighting became even more frequent, and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him while they remained together. Into the juicy stuff. Price is murder. So, so yep. he's the one that she knocks off. Right. In February 2000, a series of assaults on Price started with Catherine stabbing Price in the chest. Finally fed up, he kicked her out of his house. Finally. Finally. The stab in the chest did him in. That, that's what it took. On February 29th, Price took out a restraining order to keep her away from both him and his children. That afternoon, Price told his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, it would be because Catherine had killed him. So he must have sensed he it. He felt, yeah, well, maybe it was the stabbing. The stabbing <laughs> that, may have done it. Yeah, clued him in. Yeah. They pleaded with him not to go home. No shit. Yeah. But he told them that he believed she would kill his children if he did not. Oh, yeah. Price arrived home to find that Catherine, although not there herself, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. He then spent the evening with his neighbors before going to bed at 11 p.m. Earlier that day, Catherine had bought new black lingerie and had videotaped all her children while making comments which have since been interpreted as a crude will. Catherine later arrived at Price's house while he was sleeping and sat watching TV for a few minutes before having a shower. She then woke Price and they had sex after which he fell asleep. Mm -hmm. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbor became concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway and when Price did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. Both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him, but after noticing blood on the front door, alerted the police, who arrived at 8 a.m. Breaking down the back door, police found his body with Catherine comatose from taking a large number of pills. She had stabbed Price with a butcher's knife while he was sleeping. According to the blood evidence, he awoke and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape while Catherine chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the hallway where he finally died after bleeding out. After which, Catherine went into Aberdeen and withdrew $1,000 from Price's ATM account. Mm -hmm. Price's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times Jesus. in both the front and the back of his body, with many of the wounds extending into vital organs. Several hours after Price had died, Catherine skinned him, and hung the skin from a meat hook on the archway into the lounge room. Oh, my God. She then decapitated him and cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with baked potato, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy in two settings at the dinner table, along with notes beside each plate, each having the name of one of Price's children, children. on it. Yeah. She was preparing to serve his body parts to his children. A third meal was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, and it is speculated Catherine had attempted to eat it but could not, and this has been put forward in support of her claim that she has no memory of the crime. Price's head was found in a pot with vegetables. The pot was still warm, estimated to be between 40 and 50 degrees Celsius, which is roughly 104 to 122 degrees Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. indicating that the cooking had taken place in the early morning. Sometime later, Catherine arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty one-liter soft drink bottle with the legs crossed. <laughs> this was claimed in court to be an act of defilement demonstrating Catherine's contempt for Price. Catherine had left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of, of Price, bloodstained and covered with small pieces of flesh. Hell yeah. The, the note's a little rough, so I'm not going to read it. Okay. 
let's just say it had a lot of accusations mm-hmm. that everybody's like, that's not true. Yeah. It talked about him probably abusing, her. abusing not her, but his children. Children. I uh, got you. So on to the trial. Now that we know what happened to poor Mr. Price. No. Catherine's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected and she was and she was arranged on February 2nd, 2001 on the charge of murdering Price to which she entered a plea of not guilty. Her trial was initially fixed for July 23rd, 2001, but was adjourned due to her counsel's illness and was refixed for October 15th, 2001. Mm-hmm. When the jury commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, which five accepted. I don't blame them. Yeah. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out, after which the jury was impaneled. Catherine's attorneys then spoke to the judge who adjourned the following day. So they figured out the jury, then yeah. her counsel's like, hold up, we got to talk to you, we'll meet back tomorrow. Yeah. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. Yeah. It was now made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. Yeah. He had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Catherine understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make and was fit to make such a plea. Right. Catherine's legal team had planned to defend her by claiming amnesia and disassociation. A claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did consider her sane. Mm-hmm. No reason has ever been given for the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Catherine still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Catherine's lawyers requested that she be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. Yeah, no shit. When Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Catherine's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life in prison and ordered that her papers be marked never to be released. Yeah. And this is the first time that this had ever been imposed on a woman in Australian history. Wow. In June 2006, Catherine appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail without possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. Justice Peter McClellan, Michael Adams, and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the NSW Court of Criminal Appeal in September Mm -hmm. with Justice McLean writing in his judgment, this was an appalling crime almost beyond (laughs) contemplation in a civilized society. Yeah, no shit. So he's like, sorry, bitch. Yeah, you don't belong in society. You don't belong in society. You killed and skinned a man and decapitated him and tried to cook him and feed him to his kids. You get to stay where you are. Yeah, sorry. In, in, in the United States, she's gotten the death penalty. Yeah. Have there ever been any women in the United States that got the death penalty? I don't know. You're, you're the expert here. I'll have to look it up because obviously we know. I would, I'm would. i sure there has been. I'm sure there has been, but there's never been like a. What's her nuts from Monster? Did she get the death penalty? I don't know. I've got a phone right here. I can find out. Yeah. You keep talking. I'll look Look this it up, up. Jamie. <laughs> Jamie, pull that up. But uh, I thought she was. That shit crazy? That shit crazy and fascinating. Apparently, execution in the United States started in 1976. Okay. Started? Well, it says since 1976 when the Supreme Court of the United States lifted 
the moratorium on mm-hmm. capital punishment in Greg versus Georgia. Mm-hmm. So they started executing women in 1976. It sounds like there was a moratorium on capital punishment. Yeah. For a while, and then they lifted it in the 70s. Yeah. So a moratorium just means like they stopped doing it for a okay. while. Well, the first female executed was in 1984. Mm-hmm. It says 18 women have been executed in the United States. Women represent less than 1.5% of the 1,500 executions performed in the United States since 1976. Yeah. So the first one was in 1984, and the last one was January 3rd of this year. Oh, wow. Who was, was Eileen Warnos one of them? Yeah, she was, she's the 10th woman to be executed, and she was executed October 9th, 2002. Yeah. A lot of these names I don't recognize, recognize but I'm going to be honest. I don't think it's fair, but I think when women are like on trial like that, it's not a big a deal. No, they, t- they kind of get, though I don't know. Because the United States loves trash TV, and when there's a big court case going oh, yeah, on, big trial. they tune in. tune in and show that shit on Every station that'll show it. Yeah. So everybody in the 50 states is like, did you watch the trial today? Right. You know, people who work from home have TVs on in the background yeah. when they're not listening to calls. Yeah. Just listening in on the trial. I I think it was the Casey Anthony trial that was happening. Because, fun fact, my mom has worked from a home office pretty much my entire life. <laughs> That's a fun fact. It's a fun fact. And I can remember... The way her desk was set up, she had a TV like on the other side of it. So like she's looking at her computer and next to her on the walls of TV. Right. And she'd have the Casey Anthony trial going. Yeah. And she'd watch it from like the moment she clocked in <laughs> to the moment she clocked out. And then when we watch the news after dinner. Right. Yeah. You get the recap. You get the recap. And my dad's asking her about it. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't have the luxury of working from home like she did. Right. He had a real job. <laughs> he had to leave the house. Unlike my mother, who got to work in her pajamas. I was going to say, yeah, I'm sure she wasn't doing real work. No, no. No, my corporate business with my mother never did real work. Yeah. But, so, 18 women in the United States. Not That's definitely not our Australian friend there. No. But, that that's what I got. Fuck yeah. What'd you think? I think she's a monster. That's horrifying. I do, too. You're lucky. Yeah, well... <laughs> You're just going to know you're lucky. No, no, no. You're lucky. <laughs> I'm stronger than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only reason you're not in jail is because you're not strong. I'm strong enough to stop you from killing me. <laughs> hey, I'm the one that twisted a knee bowling. So yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do? Yeah. But uh, that's what I got for you this week. And I'm thinking next week we talk about Wendigos. Okay. And I've been wanting to call them Winnebago's <laughs> all day long in my yeah. head. Let's keep it creepy, friends. Let's keep it creepy, friends. We're going to talk about them Winnebago's next week. Talk about the recreational vehicle or the Winnebago. And to quote one of my favorite podcasts, Simply Whelmed, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago they did an episode where they walked. It was one of their Halloween episodes, and they talked about the scary Winnie the Pooh movie, Blood and Honey. Yeah. And there's a scene in it. Where they're trying to get away from Pooh and Piglet, and they stumble across like their camp, their commune, and they're just surrounded. There's just a bunch of Sunseekers by like 1950 Sunseekers. It looked like, like a nice the stainless campground. steel like panel. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> Pooh and Piglet got it going yeah, on out here. Woods, they, they're, they're not bad. It looks like a nice campground with a large fire in the middle, yeah, a big fire pit. But so I was thinking next week we'd talk about the pros and the cons of Winnebago's and those sun seekers and see what we like best, see no, what we can come up with. No, we're going to talk about the Native American lore. 
of, of the, the Winnebago. <laughs> of the Wendigo. Up in the cold mountains, you'll find a Winnebago. Yeah. No, we're going to talk about Wendigos. I I stumbled across Wendigos for the first time when you and I played... Um, what's Until Dawn. Until Dawn. It's, it's sad that I can't remember that game title because you and I have played it like four times. Uh, about two or three times, yeah. Yeah. But there's Wendigos in there, which I must have saw something about a game and it made me start thinking about them. But mm-hmm. I'll save the rest for next week. Yes. So if you want to contact me and ask me about my brief hiatus and what it's <laughs> like to be a K-pop star, you can reach me at a couple o creeps at gmail.com. That's the letter A, couple o creeps at gmail.com. And as always, stay creepy, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>